This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is a powerhouse creator, producer, and musician. He is the founder and creative director of Ravon Productions, recognized for live touring concerts and a wildly popular hometown residency with the Omaha series. That includes shows like Yesterday and Today, the interactive Beatles experience, Billy McGuigan's Pop Rock Orchestra, and the British Invasion, a symphonic experience. His first album, Together, is available now on Spotify. Stay tuned for Omaha Arts Incubator and musical marvel, Billy McGuigan. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. It's funny, the only reason you know that is because your mom always sends you clippings of me if I'm in the paper. That's, That's how right. you follow along. I love that. I don't have to have the Omaha World Herald because I have mom's clipping service. <laughs> So I'm sure somewhere in your house, I'm on a refrigerator somewhere. There's got to be a magnet with a story about me up there somewhere. What I like about it is that she still knows who I know, right? She still knows what news I need. So it's pretty nice to have a clipping service. It's very Midwestern. Yeah. Yes. Now, let me introduce the audience to you. I mentioned you're Billy McGuigan, and I said all of these nice things, but you are one of the many talented McGuigan brothers. Yeah, I'm one of three very talented McGuigan brothers. I of the McGuigan clan. Yes, and I'm not going to say which of you is most talented, but I think one of the ways that you cover it up is you stick together. <laughs> You're all playing, and people go, wait, maybe that guy's the most talented one. I don't know. But you guys do so much interesting live work and musical work, concert work, plays. You you started together very young. You, you all played instruments, but just tell me a little bit how you kind of then decided you were going to be a group. Poverty helped, and I know that's a weird thing to say, but I, when my brother Ryan was born, I was born in 75, my brother Ryan was born born in 78 and my dad couldn't afford to feed us anymore so he joined the military which was the best thing that ever happened to our family immediately we went to germany and so ryan and i are two little kids growing up in germany living in a village where nobody spoke english we didn't have a television so we had our dad's guitar and beetle records and we became fascinated just listening to those and then a friend of my dad's lent him a beetle chord book and that really didn't mean anything to us because we don't read music but my dad hand copied every song he could out of that book over the next six weeks. And then he sat us down around the dining room table and started to teach us songs. And then my brother Matthew was born over there, brought him in, and then there were four of us. And it was like, my dad was Paul, I was John, Ryan was George, Matthew was the page turner. <laughs> but every Friday and Saturday, we'd sit around learning all of these songs and it has stuck. I mean, and then we moved back to the States and Georgia. We started to do karaoke. That's how music really came into our lab was through the Beatles. And I know we're not the only ones to do that. But again, that not having television for about four years of our lives, that so our our creativity is what got us through the day. Like I remember taking long trips when you go to school in Germany, you'd have like a charter bus that would come pick you up. It would take you an hour and a half to get to school. You know, and you have a guy with a machine gun on the bus, you know, it's 
crazy times. And we, I remember we would sit in the back of the bus and it would be like, let's make up stories. And every day somebody had to make up a story. And I would look forward to that more than school every day. I've been listening to your podcast nonstop for the past couple of days. And that is that spark that hits everybody, right? And for me, I think it was that combination of music, uh, telling stories, uh, just entertaining people in some way. I've never really gotten over that. I know what you said about the poverty, but I really think it is the absence of that additional media because nowadays, even though we're all more connected by a cell phone, we lack times of imagination because we fill it with programming, with anything we can. Everybody else's imagination is being thrown at you, all these beautiful creative ideas that you don't even think, oh, but we didn't have a choice. Our dad got us Dukes of Hazard plastic guitars and immediately my brother and I were John and Paul. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the interesting thing that I wish that I could impart on the listener is that you always have a choice to be a consumer or a creator. And it's perfectly okay to consume. We're all just inspired and entertained. But when you become only a consumer, when everything is what you're binging, what you're watching, you start to atrophy in the imagination department. And that's the same with writing a thank you letter. If you reduce it to THX on a text, it's quite a bit different than having to go into your head and say, what is it about that person that's special? Why did this impact me, this gift? How can I make this return moment as special as the arrival of the gift. It could not have said it better myself. I just recently got a get well soon card and it meant so much to me. I couldn't believe it. Like I've gotten hundreds of texts, which was amazing, but this person took their time. I hope you're doing well. Hope your recovery is going great. I just, it brought almost tears to my eyes because that took so much more time than send. It harkens back to those, which you and I both in what we do, we try to take people kind of back to those memories that brought them up. Yeah, nostalgia is such an interesting elixir to me. In parts, mostly warmth, which triggers something else inside you. My whole life isn't like retro where I don't want to move forward, but I do like reflecting on things because then you can sort out the crap. Like you could leave the bad news of the day behind and you can sort of cherry pick out that moment that just as you described the difference between being at the table doing music, from being on the bus with guys with machine guns. That's right. It it all worked together somehow, you know, and created whatever this current brain is. Now you've mentioned the Beatles. I know that you're a Beatle file. Fanatic would be the proper word. When you name one of your children after a Beatle, I think you've gone over a certain hump. Yes, and that's your daughter, Cartney. She's very, very talented. I did use her in a custom event for a children's museum and she joined in with a troop, troop of kids that did some custom material for a fundraiser. And I was really, really impressed by her talent. You've got several talented kids. I'm very lucky to have talented kids who are both in the arts and both thriving. And you yourself have been instrumental in some of that drive that I did with the Omaha Children's Museum in a couple of different efforts. You and your friend Tara wrote a special song and we made a music video and it was super fun. And I just like making stuff and I like making it with people who in the spirit of good fun say, okay, we're going to bring something into the world. And you guys wrote that amazing song and then you were kind enough to play parts in the music video to get it off. And during the pandemic, that was the best way that they could do a fundraiser for their organization was to make it TV program essentially. So when you and Tara were doing that, is it fun to rather than recreate material that you've played or that comes from someone else's catalog to sit down and kind of from whole cloth write something new. That process was amazing. Together was the first time I'd I'd ever written songs for myself or felt confident. So that happened 
right before the pandemic, we're out on tour. You and I had talked about this for several years, the writer's block that I had. I could, I wanted to write songs, could not sit down, would, nothing would happen. But I, I was reading a book, Ben Fold's book. I was watching like a country music, Ken Burns country music documentary. And the streak of songs came out of me. And if anybody listens to Together, I wrote 10 of the 16 songs on the album in one day. They just came out. Wow. It, it was like, oh my God, there's another song. There's another song. And so coming out of that, I had written the album, released the album, and then you contacted about writing this song. And I was like, am I going to be able to do this again? Because I'd turn the faucet off. And that's kind of how yeah. the songwriting works. Once you turn it on, it's going to keep coming. We talked about the idea and immediately I told you, yeah, I've got, I think I've got the structure of the song. I think I had that the first day. And then you kind of helped mold the idea. And I was like, yeah, let's just, we'll throw things against the wall and see what happens. And we gave that to you which I'd never really written a song and had a producer of the song, which essentially that's what you were. And so it was like, here are the notes, try this again. And it was like, all right, but it was great. Like went back in the lab and it was like the coolest creative time writing the song. And then I recorded it and then we shot the music video and it was to see it go from, Hey, do you want to do this to, can I do this? And then we're doing it. Yeah. Oh, so satisfying. Yeah, and it was really a short couple of months from, I think, the moment we discussed it to when we finished it. And I know you talked about deadlines in a prior podcast episode, and, and you gave me deadlines. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I've never had to deadline a song because it's just been me. And it, it helped. It was amazing. Like, I think I had it to you maybe within two days, like at least a demo of it. So fun experience. Yeah, no, it was awesome. And you, it was inspired. And ultimately, that collaboration led to us thinking about the visuals and the casting. And again, we went back to you and your contemporaries at McGuigan Arts Academy, which you founded with Kate White Cotton and Kimberly Faye Thickman. Yeah, I'll backtrack to show you how that the academy kind of came back. So when we were in Germany, we got introduced to music. Schools are amazing if you're a military kid. They were way better than public schools. They were amazing. And then we moved to Columbus, Georgia, Fort Benning. So we lived there for eight years, but we had amazing school system. The Fort Benning school system were top notch. And sixth, seventh and eighth grade, they brought in artists for two weeks and certain kids who were got good grades, good attendance, good attitude, got to work with them. My first year, I got to work with a film editor where we shot a movie on film, learn how to edit. But when I was in seventh grade, we had an improv artist come and I worked with him for two weeks. That changed my life forever. I was introduced to a, a form of art that I really, really enjoyed, that kind of on the edge. Improv was my thing. And when I got moved to Nebraska, I started an improv group here. But that one moment, that improv experience in seventh grade changed my life. And it was just one, a professional artist telling us that, hey, this is a real job. You can do this. That was the spirit behind the McGuigan Arts Academy. Let's form a place with professional artists because we have them in Omaha. And so kids can come work with professional artists, not just music, not just theater, but also art, photography, filmography, whatever they want to get into, we can provide them with a professional. So... After, when we did the song, we had kids that were ready-made to be cast in the uh, in the video. Which, And I think the Arts Academy had only been open for maybe six months at that point. It was pretty fresh, but surprisingly, also at that time, it grew from one small space to much bigger space. And part of that is to credit to you as a what I would call a civic treasure in the Omaha area. Your productions are always wildly popular. You do long runs around Christmas time. So people know your name. So by putting that on the Academy... People knew they would be working with professional people. I think the parents really, really appreciate the trust of putting their kids in someone's care for 
a camp experience or an arts experience that allows them to know they're going to grow. To see what it did for me, I didn't have a great childhood growing up. You know, I have some things that weren't amazing, but like getting to work with those artists, it brought something out in me that I didn't know was in there. Like I only played the Beatles songs around my brothers. You know, we didn't do that at school. I was, I threw the football and played baseball. I didn't do that stuff. But to see kids now that get to work with our artists that work at the academy and it's changed their lives. I mean, kids that were bullied, now they have the confidence to say, hey, don't mess with me, you know? And it's like, we did that. That's been overwhelming. Well, it's like the school of rock. Now, I don't know if that's one that your company has done yet, but you should jump right into it because I know the Omaha series, you get different things. But Andrew Lloyd Webber's has a really interesting model there where he lets any kids or arts groups do that production. They get clearance quickly, where most of the time, if something's still on Broadway or if it's touring, they keep you from doing it. But that's a great place where all of those kids that have crazy talent and are probably somewhere on the nerd spectrum where the music lets them express themselves some way. That's such a showcase for that kind of thing. So cool. And we got to see that on Broadway. Oh, that's right. Well, let me ask you, since we're talking about Beatles, what was your response to the Peter Jackson documentary, The Beatles Get Back, where you could see them in the early stages writing the songs before they knew the songs were? (laughs) You know, Pluto isn't a planet anymore. That's how it felt. In this room that I'm in right now, there's Beatles stuff everywhere. And I thought I knew everything there was to know about the Beatles. I've watched the anthology, which is, I don't know, 10 hours. I've watched it 30 times. You think you know all of this information that John and Paul didn't get along. It was really tense. There was Everybody just brought in separate songs. And to be so wrong, and they were even wrong. The Beatles' memories of what happened weren't correct First of all, it's like, well, what is history? It completely changed that album for me, which is one of my least favorites. Had songs that I like to now. It's probably my favorite just because I saw how they made it. I saw Paul sit down and he makes up Get Back and George could not be any more disinterested in it. To see all those little moments that I thought in my head, I knew how it played out, to see how it actually played out was incredible. Have you watched it? I have not watched the whole thing, but I the pieces that I saw, it's like a time machine was invented. Yeah. It's so weird to be able to be in a space with people in early creation who really aren't sure where they're going with it. There's so many interesting things that happen, but one is they keep chasing this. They ha- they need 14 songs. They're chasing it the whole time. It's not going to happen. How are we going to come up with these 14 songs? But th- yet they're practicing. Like day one, they already have two that are on the album that they just pull out of thin air. And by the end of it, they're like, okay, this is never going to happen. How many songs do we have? And they list them off and it's the album. How did we get here? <laughs> what the audience cannot see is the shirt that I'm wearing. Can you see this shirt? It's blue and it has sort of white etchings around it. I, I wore it for you today because... All of this pattern, these are doodles from John Lennon's sketchbook. Oh, oh, wow. That got turned into fabric. One of the reasons I like it so much is that this is somebody's art in their little notebook that they think is nothing. Yeah. And at the end of their life and at the end of their fame, by turning it into something else, repurposing it, reintroducing it in another way, Suddenly there's this Lennon shirtwear stuff. Yeah. It's just a reminder that your smallest idea, inconsequential to you at the time, could be a part of your legacy. That's the way a hook to a song comes up. You're just and do you remember to write it in your notebook or do you let it fall off on the curb when you're walking? 
I mean, so many times that's how it works with a joke. It works with a play. It works with a song into a musical. And I think when I think about that documentary and the development is that regardless if it's haphazard, regardless if at the point mm. is you're chasing 14 songs, you are chasing something. Right. You are creating a structure or a system. Right. And sometimes it is the deadline. Sometimes it is, I'm going to learn to juggle five balls by Christmas. Right. Who knows what the point is that you do that? In the thing, they're like, they want to go to Libya. And like, as the sun comes up and they're going to have a thousand Arabians in the desert. And the Beatles are like, why would we do that? And it's like, oh, we're going to go on a boat and it's going to be all your biggest fans. And they're like, no. And let's go on the roof. Yeah, that'll work. And it's like the most iconic thing they ever did. It was the last idea because they'd shot down all these brilliant, beautiful ideas that only they could have done. You know, performing on the Great Wall. Yeah, let's do that. Nah, let's just go yeah. upstairs. It's their collaboration, even though they weren't getting along, Pat, which I think is so unique in their situation that their respect for each other overrode all of the other crap. And it took bringing in Billy Preston. If, and when you watch it halfway through the second, I've watched it 11 times, Pat. I'm sorry, the whole thing. In the middle of the second, Billy Preston shows up. And in all the Beatle lore, you hear about how important Billy Preston was when they brought him in. It changed everything. And you see it happen there. They bring this guy and they all, they're not bickering anymore. They're all in their best behavior. And the creativity level and their musicianship mm. skyrockets. Amazing. I've heard stories about the Eagles also not getting along. In fact, there was a time where I was doing a corporate event many years ago where they had to have separate entrance so they couldn't see each other till they got to the stage. Now, they always played a great show, but they were competitive about it. That guy got a white limo, then I got to get a white limo. I feel like there was another very special moment for us, which was a year ago in the summer in August, because of your love of the Beatles and the knowledge and the ability that you and your brothers have and the extensive catalog of songs, which included unpublished songs. A dear friend, George Shapiro, who was a iconic Hollywood manager, passed away and his family graciously invited me to produce along with a woman named Amy Hyatt, who was George's assistant for some 40 years. We were producing the memorial for George in California on the Paramount lot and trying to decide what elements were going to be special. And when they said George's favorite singer was Paul McCartney and he loves the Beatles. And then we found this unbelievable Xerox copy of a song that was in George's desk and in George's files. And we were like, this is the song we're going to end this memorial with. So the notion was, what are we going to do for entertainment on the back lot of Paramount? And I said to them, here's the band we need. We need to get yesterday and today the interactive Beatles experience group, which is the McGuigan's brothers to come and they will wow us for two hours out there in the courtyard. And we were able to put you under the famous Paramount arch where we dressed it out with a red curtain. And I just want to know how it felt for you making the drive out before playing the night and then how that felt in everybody on the way home. Because you came a long way to deliver for us, and it was an extraordinary night. I wonder what your conversations were like before, during, and after. <laughs> we have never been so nervous to perform, ever. And it was kind of a, who's going to be there? Who are we going to see? Could this person be there? You know, because we are also fans of the people that were going to be there. It was an exclusive A-list of the stars of stars. We didn't tell you in advance. I mean, now there, it, it's not such a secret, but at the time, the guest list was right. important. It, right. 
which we understood. So just going to the Paramount lot for us was amazing. And Kate, who is our tour manager and runs our lives, the first thing she did when she got there was run over the hedges at the Paramount lot with our trailer. And the guy's like, nah, no problem. And I think we all kind of relaxed at that point. But then we set up and it was like a normal gig until people started to arrive. And then you saw stars of stars as my brother, Matthew, the one who was born in Germany, playing piano in this grand foyer. And all of his comedic heroes are standing around him talking. Some of us were super nervous. Some of us, like me, I was just super excited. The first person I saw was, was Mel Brooks. And I couldn't believe I was two feet away from Mel Brooks. And Kevin Nealon, who you know, and I've been with you when you've said hi to Kevin Nealon. But I jumped off the stage immediately and had to say, I've never seen somebody kill at a funeral. It was amazing. He really, really did speak well. He was a longtime friend of George's as well. We were lucky that everybody loved George. It was very easy to ask people to speak. And there were just so many people that were able to get up and share great memories. It was a very moving experience to me to be able to oversee a little bit of that, just the smallest amount of it. And just to be sure that the family was honored and that George was remembered in a way that was not so much the industry as remembering the man, the father. All that he was, which I thought was the coolest part, because it wasn't just about his famous friends, because his business partner's daughter was just as entertaining as anybody else who was there, and his family was just as entertaining. It was uh, an amazing event. And of course, we came out singing Beatles songs. There we are. It was great. Listen, everybody stuck around. It's one of the times that I've seen Hollywood not acting like Hollywood. They were there on purpose, and, and the purpose was to salute great George Shapiro and to honor him, whether people were networking or schmoozing. <laughs> That's out of anybody's control. Yeah, it didn't look like it. It just looked like an amazing gathering of A-list stars is what it looked like. I'm offering my public thanks again globally here. Your call to action, I think you even had to reschedule something, but I couldn't have been prouder of my Omaha roots uh, that we had the answer. The Yesterday and Today show is not a Beatles tribute show where you act like each of the Beatles. It is a jukebox show in a way where they get to select songs. People are telling stories about it or putting on a card why it's special to them. And it's a little bit more like a Casey Kasem night of, of Beatles. I was telling you about my background with improv. That's that's how I started. So my comfort zone is riffing with an audience. If I was going to be a comic, I would do 30 minutes of crowd work. And so the, those cards give me my ammunition. So when, a, when an audience member comes in, they make the request with their name, their favorite Beatles song and why they choose it. That's how we put our set list together. And then we read the cards before. It's like, like Pat, what's your favorite Beatles song? Well, we're making eye contact, right? That for me is the most important part. Like, tell me why you love that song. And when you do, and then we play it, it just heightens the reason why people like the song. And then, of course, the reason why my brothers and I put the show together was because we lost our dad when he was 42 to leukemia. And the Beatles songs are what kept our, my brothers and I together. And so I did a Buddy Holly show and it was like, ah, we can do something else, can't you? And I was like, yes, I have this idea for a Beatles show. And everybody 20 years ago said it was the worst idea. You're not going to dress up. You can't learn all those songs. But here we are still. And you said it brought you back together. But that, again, the title of your original album is called Together. And the titular song of that was inspired by words you mentioned, your mother and your uncle and other folks in there. And it, are the words in those lyrics true to yeah. advice they gave you? Thank you. I mean, it took me off guard asking me that. It choked me up a little bit. Uh, my dad had this thing called the McGuigan Huddle. When my brothers, we would fist fight. 
three years apart, all of us. So I'm the oldest, and then Brother Ryan is three years, and then Matthew's three years. We would fist fight, knock down, drag out. I remember my brother Ryan ripped my Imagine poster off the wall, and I ripped his new kids on the block poster off the wall. And my dad would grab us. I'm like, guys, look. The only people that you're ever going to have for the rest of your life are you. So he would call the McGuigan huddle. We'd have to get in and put our heads together. You know, I, we love each other and we're going to stick together. That was his thing. And when we lost him, that was really hard because we didn't have that person. But we had our stepmom who really stayed and raised us. And the uncle is a, was a friend of ours who became like an uncle. And he had a dream about my dad and made him promise that he would look after us. And to this day, he still has our friend John. Um, and so that's what that song is about. Just it's my Hey Jude, take your saddest song and make it better. So I took all the worst parts of my life and made it this peppy kind of corny little song. Yeah, it's not corny at all. But the line, uh, you know, with a hug and some love, we get through it this together is powerful. It's powerful. This thing. Yeah. But you mentioned Buddy Holly on the fly. And I have to say that I think that may have been one of the productions where early on, which I saw you at the Omaha Playhouse, they were doing a Buddy Holly story, a well-written play established with the Buddy Holly catalog. And my recollection was that you were out playing in bars with your band and that was essentially the audition or somebody discovered you through that and asked you to audition. Will you tell me a little bit about how you came through that door? Well, when I graduated from high school, I went to college to be an actor. That didn't work out. So I just got a degree and became like, I was a cover band musician. But I had done one show at the Omaha Community Playhouse in 94. I did, was like a dancer in Sweet Charity. But they kept my name on file for some reason. I'm not sure why. I was very lucky. And Jim Boggess called me out of the blue one day. And this was a month after seeing Buddy the Buddy Holly story in London. People love Buddy Holly over in, in Britain. But you saw it. You're saying you I saw, saw it. it. Yeah, okay. I saw it. And I remember leaning over to the person who was with me. I said, if I ever had the opportunity, this would be one because he plays guitar, he can sing and, and acts. And those are all things that I could do. And I'd never had a chance to do it on stage. And a year later, Jim Boggess calls me out of the blue, leaves a message on my answering machine. That's how old this was. <laughs> and he says, hey, we have a part that we think you could be perfect for. Would you let us know? And I remember thinking, it's Buddy. I, th they're doing Buddy, and I'm, and I'm going to do this. And it was Buddy. And he said, we want to come see you perform. That'll kind of be your audition. I said, well, I'm playing at this bar in Benson. <laughs> you know it. And it was called Dubs. And there was a sign that said, beer, not just for breakfast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, motorcycles parked out front. And the night they came, there were five people in the audience and one was our sound engineer. I mean, there was nobody. That's how popular I was. And I remember I did, ain't no sunshine when she's gone. That was the song we did. And they left right after. And I thought, I've blown it. That was, that was my shot. And I blew it. And I called Jim the next day and I said, I'll come in. I'll sing, oh boy. And he went, no, 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 you've got the part. So it went from five people at a bar and the night that Buddy closed, there was a waiting list of 1,500 people for the mm. Omaha Playhouse. Like we had people in the pit, off stage that come, came to see the closing. And it was just like part of something special and unique. And I didn't want it to stop. Yeah, I was 28 at the time. And, and I had never had any success in acting or anything that I'd ever done. And it was the first time and I, I've got to do something. So I wrote a show called Rave On. It was just like I took the songs, put them in an order. And I made up stories in between, put glasses on, acted like I was Buddy Holly. And that became Rave On, which I toured for about 15 years. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and a dynamic show. All of the qualities of what Buddy had, the musicianship and the charisma and all of that were embodied. And at that time, you were at the right age to play that part. And then there gets to be a point 
where <laughs> you're an aging buddy, Holly, who is older <laughs> than when the plane went down. Correct. So you have to start Correct. to ask yourself, uh-oh, what's the storyline now that buddy Holly has gray hair? Exactly. And people... To this day, they still want me to do it. I'm like, I, listen, I am double his age. I am <laughs> right. two times the age of that man. I am not going to do these songs. I didn't get into this business to become a tribute artist. That's not why I wanted to be an actor. And then that didn't work out. And I started playing music. And then I got this part. And then you're putting on glasses. And then you notice people are saying, hey, buddy. And you're like, oh, you mean me? And then, oh, tribute artist, Billy McGuinn. And you go, wait, how did, wait, this isn't. Wait a minute, that's not what I meant to do. Indeed, so that's why I made sure with yesterday and today when I developed the idea that there was no no dressing up. That was, we were adamant about that. We're not trying to be the Beatles. We're not, we're not doing that. We're, we want to know why you love them and then honor that instead of what they So I'd like. love to talk about some of the other productions though that you do in the Omaha series because yeah. in addition to the McGuigan Arts Academy where you're teaching and inspiring and, and opening the minds and hearts of these children, you are putting on a series of productions every year, uh, three shows or four shows at different satellite locations. And they've included shows like the Rocky Horror Show and Ring of Fire, which is the music of Johnny Cash. How far ahead are you having to work to plan the series? Are we into next year's productions now? Here's the beautiful thing that we did when we sat down with Kimberly and Kate. I said, all the rules that all the other theaters in this town, they all follow their same rules for some reason. So let's just not, let's just break them. So we figure out in December when we're doing yesterday and today here, we start to look at what the next year will look like. Eh, and we'll figure it out as we go along. We do secure the rights, but there have been times when uh, we just waited. Like Ring of Fire might have been one. Like, oh, we have a slot and we have a couple of shows. So we're not tied to anything or anybody, which is... The beauty. So if we didn't want to do one, we could go, eh, or let's add one. Again, we're, we're very loose, very free flowing. And I think we let our juices flow. And I think that's the coolest thing about what we have going on here. You know, like the Rocky Horror Show, we didn't expect it to be a hit. We thought, we think we would do that well, because we got a great band and, you know, Omaha's stacked with good. And that's what we bring. We try to make sure that the, if it's a rock musical, that it's rock. And is there a title that you yourself have always wanted to do that you're like hey i really want to put this show on someday yeah i want to do the music man oh that's probably not what you expected me to say but i love the music man i think it is the quintessential american show it's got i just saw hugh jackman in it and i was like a kid again i was like this is so fun you know the quartet the americana i love all that stuff and that ultimately is be one that i, I want to be in and do yeah Okay, so have you been to Mason City, Iowa? I have, yeah. Because you'll you'll get your Meredith Wilson baptism there. Indeed. Everything's there. Yeah. The gazebo and the footbridge. The town and square, the, all of it. Yeah, it's amazing. Look, you can see it gets me excited. And that's because I, I, I did that show in high school, and I remember I was so excited because Till There Was You was in there, and the Beatles covered that. So I was like, oh, there's a Beatles cover song. Yeah. Everything comes back to the Beatles for me, Pat. Yes, I, I hear you. Tell me a little bit about the unpublished works that didn't come out that were so popular. Are there songs there that people should know about or find? Are there titles that you love? Because I know you host a Beatles podcast, yeah. so I figure you're the insider on something that we should know about. There's a new Beatles song coming out this year. Wow. I don't know if you've heard that. So there was a demo that when the Beatles got together to do Free as a Bird and Real Love, there was a third song that was in consideration and George did not like it. In past interviews with Paul, he would say, yeah, but one day I'm going to get my hands on it and I'll just finish it. So with the new Peter Jackson technology, 
which are you aware of what they did with get back to make that? No, this is the cool. So what they, they created an AI that could identify John's voice, John's guitar, Ringo's kick drum, Ringo's snare, Ringo's. So they can separate everything. Just say, just give me John's voice. And there's John's voice. Perfect. Right. Wow. So they took this demo and did that. And Paul and John are going to have a new Beatles song that'll come out later this year. So it's called now oh, and then. Right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, even the song is uh, think of me now and then my old friend is kind of the whole theme of this. It gives me chills just right now. And you know, 80 year old Paul, he said it's finished and will be released later this year. That is uh, extraordinary. Yeah. And so what they'll be able to do with that same technology is take the early Beatle records that they can't separate because they're in mono and they'll be able to separate them, put them in surround and stereo. It, if you're a Beatles fan, it's going to just keep getting better. No, that is amazing. It reminds me, I think Nat King Cole and his daughter did a duet when he was doing it posthumously. Yeah. And I, I got to tell you, it's pretty magical to have those worlds come together. It's like the discovery of DNA and then catching a criminal 50 years later. Indeed. And I know, and I know people are petrified of it, but in music, I think it's, it's my TikTok feed. It's, hey, John Lennon singing Paul McCartney solo songs. And it, it doesn't sound right, but I'll listen. Yeah. And you can't really beat it. Like if you want to cast another guy to join him, you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. We were talking earlier about the Imagination song that we did for the Kids Museum. I talked about the faucet. It mine has not turned off since we did that. I've written two albums, unrecorded and unreleased, since we've done that. It, they, it just won't stop. Well, let me applaud you for that because it wasn't just a block that you had. Because I remember trying to remind you that it's not your ability to play a catalog. Yeah. You mastered the Buddy Holly catalog. You embody the Beatles material and love it so much that I think what you were doing was giving those catalogs the credit for your success. And to undress that, to go down, and I think it really did require the pandemic in many ways to strip you down to being alone and needing to express yourself because you are such a dynamic performer that you can get that adrenaline high any night on stage and stay in the zone. That's 100% right, yeah. But the fact is, is that until there was no crowd to come, until there was nobody to love the Beatles song or love the Buddy Holly song, and you essentially face yourself in the mirror, you then get to ask the question, what do I have to say? And then uh, you also learn to not care what people would think as well. I think that was probably the newest thing when I started really, it's like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not doing this for anybody. And I don't really care if anybody would like it. I'm not, not in a bad way, just in a, I'm doing this because it's inside and it needs to come out and I need to get it out however I can. And that as a creative person is probably what we're always striving for. Have you heard the interviews with Bob Dylan where he's talking about, he can't believe that he's the same person that wrote those songs, that it was a gift that came to him through the air and that he was able to dial into and it's gone away and it's never come back. It, that's both inspiring and frightening at the same time, isn't it? I've heard, can't remember the writer that said this, but I've always liked it, is that they are just there to take dictation for the characters. That the story's happening in the world and it's playing out in their head as a screenplay or whatever reason, and as they're writing it down, that's their job. Show up each day and keep giving voice to those characters. And that, in a way, is a little more egoless as opposed to, I'm brilliant. I'm writing this right. great masterpiece. When you get a certain amount of that going and momentum, it's like, if you don't come to work today, the characters don't get to express themselves. They don't get to breathe. Right. Yeah. Which is also, I, I think, a lesson in finishing. 
half-finished works and unfinished songs and musicals, that they don't become anything. So better for them to be bad and be, then you can get them out and you can edit them or make a decision about them. And certainly if we knew that 50 years from now, they could separate out the parts. <laughs> right. And make it better for us without us even caring. <laughs> right. We'd be so happy. Yeah. Yeah. Songwriting has been something that I wish I would have gotten a hold of before I was 45 or 44 or whenever it kind of came to me, uh, because now I can use it. It's fun. First of all, I love doing it. I can, it, it's the one thing I can go do for eight hours and it seems like two minutes. So if you ever need any, any songs written, Pat, let's, let's write a song called Omaha. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Omaha, the musical. <laughs> yes. I'm sure somebody's already working on that. <laughs> the idea is yours. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Well, and now it's crowdsourced. <laughs> yeah, Everybody crowd, has it. a piece of it. Take it. Yeah, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Just submit your songs to billymcguigan.com. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Is that your primary website when they want to find out more about the shows and the where they're playing and what where your album is and that sort of thing? Yeah, billymcguigan.com, M-C-G-U-I-G-A-N.com. Yes, the classic spelling of Ah, yeah, the famous McGuigans. I will say thank you to Brother Matthew, who did play piano in the lobby at the Paramount, and also your buddy Max Meyer, who's part of your band. He was in the actual theater playing classical guitar, also Beatles music. Yeah. We went wall to wall with that. I get so much undeserved credit for the elements, for all the cool things that ever the people did, because they don't know how to call Max Myers and say, that was really special. Yeah, you all contributed so much to what amounted to be a very, very special salute. Well, I want to be sure that people know that every year when it gets to be the holidays, the Yesterday and Today Interactive Beatles Experience is somewhere in Omaha and somewhere hard to get a ticket. Yeah, that is that is true. Yeah, You do a lot of shows, but boy, that audience loves that show. I think for Omaha, where Mannheim Steamroller started with a special Christmas event and then went worldwide, that's a ticket to get. And it's a good stocking stuffer. People should buy them early. Each production is special. Each playlist is special. And it's very moving. I mean, I've heard... Uh, people pay tribute to uh, taking a son off before he went to war and hearing that song or their first dance or whatever reason it is. It seems to be almost a superlative that that song is synonymous with something in their life that made a difference. People ask me, what, what's a request that you remember? And I, I tell you, when we first started the show, I got when I knew the show was going to work, when you go, oh, I didn't realize this was going to happen and it happened. And I got a request and it was for Hey Jude. And the woman said, when, when I was 17, my 14-year-old brother was killed in a car accident. And after his funeral, when all the adults had left, all of the kids got around and held hands and sang Hey Jude to him. And Hey Jude was on the radio at this time. When, and she said, could you play this for me? And in his honor. And then we got to play that song. So that's what makes Yesterday and Today different from anything else, because that has nothing to do with me and everything to do with the audience. And that's what makes the show so unique and cool. I mean, I would play these songs at home for free anyway, but the fact that people want to request them, let's do it. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's what what's very artful about that particular production, which is you are no longer a cover band. You are playing covers, but it is actually uh, almost like a Make-A-Wish Foundation show. For people's memories. No, that is correct. Right? And I'm not saying that to belittle them, but I'm saying something to hold on to. And in many ways, that is hope. 
And we, we all want a little bit more of that in the world. There is no doubt. And when I tell the story of, of our dad and how we lost him, you know, you see it in the audience that if that is the tie that binds us together, that loss, and you can see that that pain led us to this celebration of love and music, then hopefully that's an inspiration. Before we go, I want to acknowledge that you created the Bill McGuigan Scholarship in the memory of your father. It's a special scholarship for a high school student that is continuing their education in the arts. And in that legacy, your dad certainly lives on and inspires another generation and another generation. And what a bright thing for you to to have taken that on. I appreciate that. My dad definitely wanted his boys to be football players and baseball players. And that's why we can play sports, but we... We've ended up being musicians in his honor, but and he was so supportive. How many scholarships have you given out over the years? This is our 10th year. So we give one out every year, yeah, to a student in Bellevue. Because my dad said, pursue it, and if it's that easy, then we do it. So every year we get donations and put together the scholarship fund, and it's, it's, it's great. Okay, well, we will sign off with uh, Bill McGuigan in our minds here. He's our arts angel looking out after those students and you and your brothers. How about if we play a little bit of the Together song yeah, that'd be great. to go out? So Because we've referenced that today. Love okay. it. Yep. She sat us down when it all went down that day. Well, she looked us in the eye and she said the one thing that she could say. With a hug and some love. Through this together She sat us down When cancer came to town That one summer And though it wasn't a surprise We could see it in her eyes Oh, I remember But with a hug and some love We got through that together And when he
Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Stare